This morning we're going to study uh, God's Word and we're in 2 Samuel. If you're here uh, on a regular basis, you know we're going through 2 Samuel chapter by chapter and verse by verse. We find ourselves in chapter 13 this morning, looking at verses 20 through 39. 2 Samuel 13, 20 through 39. The topic we're going to find there is this. Absalom gets his brother Amnon drunk at a banquet and then orders his sheep shearers to murder him. The title of our message, A Sheer Death Experience. Father, thank you so much for your word. It's uh, so meaningful to us, Lord, to read these ancient stories and see the life that is in them for us today. This is a sordid tale, Lord, a sad tale on so many levels. And yet in it we can see uh, some lessons, Lord, for ourselves. We can glean some things that will help us in our walk with you as we Uh, Lord, have our feet on the earth, but our hearts in heaven. So bless our time together in your word, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. And those who agree said, Amen. November 29, 1979, Air New Zealand Flight 901 crashed into Mount Erebus in Antarctica, killing all 257 people that took uh, what uh, was supposed to be a quick sightseeing flight. 1983, Korean Airlines Flight 007 wandered into Russian airspace and was shot down by a Russian MiG fighter over the Sea of Japan. The airliner was en route to Seoul, Korea from New York City via Anchorage, Alaska. All 269 lives were lost. The two air disasters have in common that in both cases, the flight coordinates were off by two degrees or less. Even a small error in course heading can lead to disaster. You see where I'm going with this. You and I are on a journey. It's a spiritual journey. We are on the earth, but headed for heaven. We're on a path, sometimes described as a narrow road, and we must stay on course. Errors in course setting can lead to problems. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, we read this, and I quote, Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. It's up to us, therefore, where we set our mind. While on this journey home to heaven, we can and should set it on our final destination, but we can, if we choose, set it on the earth. Our text in 2 Samuel is going to illustrate how mindset determines destination. Amnon had sexually assaulted his half-sister Tamar. Her brother Absalom set his mind on murdering Amnon. Two years later, he arrived at the destination that he had set for himself. Setting our minds and our mindset is what we want to discuss. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you are free to set your mind. Number two, you are a slave to your mindset. Let's take a look in verses 20 through 22 on setting our minds. Now, we're told that after Amnon raped Tamar, Absalom hated him. I think it's a mistake, however, to believe that what Amnon did to his sister was Absalom's primary motive for killing his brother. As the story unfolds, Absalom will eventually rebel against David and seize the throne for a time. And so we see that Absalom had his mind set on the throne. And that setting was what directed him in his actions. I think it directed him in how he dealt with the rape of his sister. Amnon was David's firstborn and heir apparent. 
A second son named Daniel, or you'll find his name also Keliab in the scriptures, he's never really mentioned in these contentions. He may have died young. Absalom was David's third son, but now he was second in line after Amnon to succeed his father. From the natural earthly point of view, Absalom would only become king after David if something happened to Amnon. When Amnon violated his sister, Absalom had the opportunity he needed to make something happen to Amnon as a cover for his real motivation, and that was to take the throne. And so 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 20 Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Hold your peace, my sister. He's your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. Now this verse is as full of intrigue as it is sadness. Let's first think about Absalom's advice to his lovely sister. It might seem he was the protective older brother, but if you think about it, not so. A protective older brother would have taken some more immediate action. The Spirit of God's law specified what ought to have taken place. In the case of the rape of an innocent girl, the perpetrator was to take her as his wife. Now, it sounds strange and almost abusive to our way of thinking, but in the tribal culture of Israel, it preserved the girl's honor and it provided for her. It took away her shame. Tamar herself had suggested to Amnon before the assault that he simply ask for her hand in marriage. Even after being violated, she understood that the right thing to do under the law was to remain with Amnon, and she suggested that to him. Amnon refused, but he could have been forced to marry Tamar under God's law. Absalom ignored this godly alternative. He didn't go to his dad on Tamar's behalf. Instead, he suggested she keep quiet and live in shame for the rest of her life. Don't think about it, is what he told her. So, you're a very young girl. You're maybe, as we saw last week, she's maybe 15, 16. She's certainly no older than 17 years old. It's not like, you know, modern society where a girl might graduate high school and then go to college and then establish a career and then maybe at, in your mid or late 20s or early 30s think about having a relationship and getting married. If you weren't married by the age 20, uh, there was something wrong with you in this culture. And especially as a daughter of King David, she would have been uh, probably promised to some ruler or some uh, other high-ranking individual. And so she's just a young girl. Am- Absalom, her brother, quite a bit older. Amnon, quite a bit older. Uh, and uh, her big brother says to her, I know you've just been raped, but let's not talk about that. Just keep it into your heart and you can live in absolute destitution and shame in my house for the rest of your life. I think that's the best way to handle this. What kind of big brother is that? I mean, you might not get along with your big brother, but you can count on him to beat the snot out of somebody if you need to. Uh, and, and, you know, Absalom just says, hey, I'm not going to really do anything about this. Well, that's not true because you're going to find out in a minute that he had decided that he was going to do something about it, but it would take time to set up because he had other ideas. Absalom plotted to kill Amnon. We know that this was his intent from the beginning because of what Jonadab says in verse 32. I'll just read it. It says, For by the command of Absalom, this, 
murder has been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. Absalom had determined to kill Amnon from the day he raped Tamar. We might think his killing Amnon was justified. After all, any decent movie or TV show in which someone gets assaulted, it always ends with the perpetrator being violently killed and with us cheering because, after all, he had it coming. Now, as Christians, you know, we have better sensibilities, but the truth is our flesh still likes those movies. You know, it's, a very, it's an old, tested and true formula, terrible situation at the beginning, and then, you know, the bad guy finally gets his, and he almost is dead, but he's not quite dead, and so then he gets killed even worse, you know, and so uh, he's mutilated and destroyed and blown to smithereens, and then right on, because he deserved it. And so we have to be careful reading this stuff, or at least I do, I guess, because I have, you know, this terrible mindset from my youth, uh, you know, that, hey, you know, Amnon had it coming, you know, and no, he didn't. There was a way of handling this, and Absalom had his own mind on it. He patiently waited for two years until he could carry out this murder by eliminating the heir standing his way, having some hope of masking it under the guise of honoring his sister, who he told to shut up and just live in his house destitute for the rest of her life. Verse 21, when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to why David remained passive in the midst of these family and kingdom tragedies. I think rather than speculate, uh, the observation I would have, one of them is, family dynamics are weird, aren't they? I mean, around Thanksgiving, those of us who are Christians start telling each other, hey, pray for me, I'm going to go see my family. Okay, and we all know what that means because... I, you know, almost everybody comes from some dysfunctional family where all these weird psychological things are going on. In my family, uh, my dad made all the final decisions, but it was easy for him to make final decisions because the decision was always no. Uh, and so he didn't have to do much thinking about anything. Uh, it was just no. So early on, you learned to get to my dad through my mom. And so anything you wanted to do, Anything. You asked my mom or you hinted to my mom and then she would relay the answer back to you after having mediated the discussion. Unless it was really no and then my dad would just say no. And then you'd have to figure out how to do it anyway and get your mom on your side. But anyway, so there's all this weird kind and your family's kind of like that. You know it is. Uh, and so David, you know, he had relationships with all of these various sons and daughters and it was just strange. And sometime a guy, you know, maybe you're a great military leader, maybe you're a, you know, some kind of a leader over here and, and you've got every, but man, your family, you just can't seem to get it together in, in terms of family because there's a different dynamic altogether. Now, of course, David ought to have been more proactive. Having said all that, Uh, We don't need to remain dysfunctional as families if we are. We can apply biblical mandates and principles. And David should have been more proactive. He wasn't proactive. He wasn't even reactive. Once it happened, he thought, gee whiz, what am I going to do? He was inactive and his inaction uh, ministers to us that inaction is not good because things have a tendency to get worse rather than better. So verse 22, Absalom spoke to his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. Now, obviously, Absalom genuinely hated Amnon for what he had done. Who wouldn't? But his absolute indifference in handling the situation belies the fact that there was more going on in his mind 
than just concern for his sister. As I indicated, uh, you know, if you're a big brother to a, a young sister, she's 14, 15, 16 years old, and she comes home and you find out she's been raped at school or on a date, are you going to tell her to just keep it to herself, not do anything about it? You're going to have to be arrested before you kill somebody. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's a pretty serious... You're going to do something about it, but, you know, Absalom, well, you know, let's bide our time because he had a plan. And so I would say that Absalom set his mind on things on the earth. It's clear looking back over his entire story. You have to see the whole story, not just this episode. He desired to be king of Israel. He set his heart on it, and it determined a course of action that lacked compassion for his sister, murdered his brother, and overthrew his father. Anytime I set my mind on things on the earth, I am determining that I want to be king. I want to rule my own life rather than submit to the plans and purposes of God for my life. When we set our minds on things on the earth, it's usually more subtle and less obvious than Absalom, but it's no less destructive, at least spiritually speaking. So what is my mind really set upon? Well, to a certain extent, what I set my mind to is revealed in what or who I am really living for. It is revealed by what or who I am thinking about most of the time. And so, you know, we can be honest with ourselves, I think. Our heart is deceptive and we need to be careful. But there's a certain honesty that we can bring and say, okay, what is it that I think about all of the time in terms of, you know, what I'm really desiring? Uh, what, what is my life really all about? If that doesn't help you discover your mindset, then ask the Lord to show you what it is or who it is that you set your mind on. If it's something or someone other than him, change the setting, dial in Jesus, and get back on course towards heaven. Now, in the remaining verses, we see that you are a slave to your mindset. What you set your mind on, if you're setting it there, then you're going to end up there. And so what Absalom determined to do, he did. It isn't something he should be commended for. It's something he became a slave to. His desire to be king instead of Amnon saw the opportunity and then waited to take proper advantage of it. So verse 23 came to pass after two full years. Absalom had sheep shears in Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. So Absalom invited all the king's sons. Then Absalom came to the king and said, kindly note, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, no, my son, let us not all go now, lest we be a burden to you. Then he urged him, but he would not go. And he blessed him. Then Absalom said, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, "Uh, why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him, so he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. It wouldn't be easy to kill the king's son and the heir to the throne and get away with it. But it could be done. As Michael Corleone once said, if anything in this life is certain, if history has taught us anything, it's that you can kill anyone. It's kind of sad that uh, the Godfather has better philosophy than most people, you know. But, you know, you can kill anybody. And so Absalom thought, you know, it's going to be hard. Uh, You know, it's going to be hard to be the heir, to get rid of Amnon. But here's an opportunity, and if I bide my time, and if I think about it, if I plan just right, this could work out. And so he finally made his move by inviting David and all the king's sons to the annual sheep shearing. I'm guessing 
that Absalom knew his dad for some reason would not be able to attend. But he invited him anyway, putting him off a little bit. Because if you're David, you're thinking, uh, and you're even thinking about maybe foul play or revenge or anything like that on the part of Absalom, you're thinking, surely he wouldn't invite me to a banquet in which he intended to do something nasty to his brother because I'm the king, I'm the father. Uh, and so it puts David off and he urges him, David, no, dad, come on, I really want you to, I want, I've got these really crazy new sheep shearers, you know, and you have to see that it's the latest in shearing technology. No, son, I can't. Absalom knew he'd beg off. And then he says, well, you know, oh gosh, you know, uh, it's going to be a really big deal. And if the king can't be there, how about the king's heir? How about my brother Amnon? Ooh, okay. Well, David thinks maybe, I guess, some, you know, why do you want Amnon? Is it, you know, I'm not quite getting this, but Absalom urges him. And maybe if you're David, you think, well, it's been two years now since Tamar was raped. Everything kind of settled back to normal. If Absalom was going to do something, wouldn't you have thought that he would have done it by now? And so maybe, you know, Amnon's not his best friend, but he recognizes him as the second, you know, uh, as the first son and He's in line of succession, and so he wants him there. It's kind of an official state thing. And so maybe David even thinks that there's been reparations between the two and that this is an olive branch that Absalom is laying out. I just think that Absalom knew a lot about his dad, just the way some of you sons knew a lot about your dad and how he would act and react and when you could fool him and when you couldn't. It's terrible, isn't it, being carnal? It's just awful. You spend so much energy trying to deceive people and, and all that. Or at least I did. Maybe you don't have that testimony. Sometimes I think I'm just talking about myself and that's why I brush my teeth with shaving cream. But and I don't know. You know, I, I think a lot of you have been there, you know, and you just, you know, you just, you know how to play your father or your mother or, or your family. You know exactly how to get what you want and you set things up and there it is, you know. Uh, maybe, it, maybe it's as simple as I, I'm, I tell my parents I'm going to his house and he tells his parents he's going to my house and we're not at either house and, you know, that kind of a thing. But everybody has that kind of a mind in the carnal, uh, you know, atmosphere in which we sometimes live. And so David gets set up. His son Absalom waits, sets him up. Now, verse 28 Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Watch now, and when Amnon's heart is merry with the wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, kill him, don't be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. I can almost hear the Godfather theme playing in the background. This is a hit at a banquet when you least expect it. By the way, there is nothing courageous and valiant about this. Here's what I want you courageous, valiant sheep shearers to do. When my brother is drunk and can't defend himself, I want you to gang up on him and shear him to death. I want you to kill him. Be courageous. Be valiant. This, uh, this is the kind of speech that you would give to a small band of men who was going against a greater enemy. Be courageous. Be valiant. We can win this thing. I think Absalom had a military mindset about this. He saw this as the takeover of a kingdom. This wasn't just about killing his brother. He could have said, hey, I want you to kill that slime ball Amnon who raped my sister. He's got it coming. No, he said, no, this, this, is, this needs courage and valor, valor because we're in a battle for the throne of Israel. Verse 29, so the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each one got on his mule and fled. I don't know why I found that funny. 
it just shows my ignorance because I didn't know mules can actually run pretty fast and that there are thoroughbred mules. There is, now probably you guys, some of you men probably belong to this, the American Mule Racing Association. Did you know there was an American Mule Racing Association? Don't raise your hand, I don't really want to know. It was formed to promote the racing of mules, which is a big thing in in California. I only mention that because growing up watching Gunsmoke, when I think of riding a mule, I get an image of Festus. Marshall Dillon's loyal deputy and his mule. How many of you know the name of Festus's mule? Anybody? It's a great trivia question. Who knows? Raise your hand if you know. I didn't know, but I know now. I don't think I'll tell you. No, I have. It's Ruth. Yeah, of course you knew that. Yeah. Not exactly the image of a prince on his steed. I mean, you see these guys running for their lives and jumping on a Mustang or something, you know, but instead... Mule, you know, and stuff. And I envision guys like walking alongside of them, you know, being faster. But these were, these were some, these were some killer mules. But anyway, verse 30. And it came to pass. Oh, the images of scripture. While they were on the way that news came to David saying, Absalom has killed all the king's sons and not one of them is left. Now it's not unusual to receive erroneous reports about an incident. People tend to assume things and then report them as facts. Or things just get exaggerated as they are retold. In this case, though, I would not also rule out a purposeful disinformation strategy in which Absalom wanted David initially to think all his sons had been killed so that when David heard that it was only Amnon, he would be strangely comforted. Now, this is kind of a... It's a terrible way of approaching the psychology of your father. But, you know, if God forbid somebody were to come to you and say everybody in your family was killed. I mean, it would be a blow. It just would be so horrifying. And then when somebody came, no, that was wrong. Uh, uh, Only this one was killed. Now, that's still a tragedy. But there's something strangely comforting about the news that most of your family is still alive. And so there's a lot of, of intrigue going on here. And then if you're David, you might think, okay, all right, I have to, I have to get, wrap my head around this. Absalom murdered or he arranged for the murder of Amnon. I can almost understand why. And maybe it's even my fault because I, the king and the father of these children, I did nothing about it. Uh, Oh, yeah, that's it. What could Absalom do? It's my fault. A lot of you as parents, you've been there. You think, this is what my children have done. Hey, that's my fault. Because I didn't do this or I did do that. And you're always, you know, you're prone to make an excuse and, and want to overlook even the terrible faults of your children. This is why when mothers get up to testify in trials, no one pays them any attention. Because they go, oh, my boy. Remember, I don't know if you're old enough to remember this, the uh, O.J. Simpson trial. His mother testified. No one cares what she said. O.J. was such a good boy. He was the best son. Well, sure. Okay. Thank you, Mrs. Simpson. God bless you. He may also have been a murderer. Uh, but that aside, uh, you know. And so uh, David is, you know, he hears that all of his sons are dead. No, it's just Amnon. Okay, I can deal with that. Verse 31, so the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the ground and all his servants stood by with their clothes torn. 
They must have had big wardrobe budgets in those days. You could have made a fortune if you had invented Velcro. Because people could have torn their garments and then reused them. But at any rate, they did a lot of clothes tearing. I don't have enough clothes to tear them up all the time. Do you? I mean, you know, a lot of sad things happen. And you're like, oh, you know. Then Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother, answered and said, Let not my Lord suppose they have killed all the young men and the king's sons, for only Amnon is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let not my Lord the king take this thing to heart to think that all the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead. Jonadab had good news, but he himself was bad news. He's the crafty friend of Amnon's who had suggested how Amnon might seduce Tamar in the first place. Now he was hanging around David, and he seems to have information, insider information, that no one else would know. He hadn't been to this banquet, but he knows somehow that Absalom had for two years been planning this murder and that only Amnon was actually dead. You have to suppose that he had at some point transferred his allegiances from Amnon to Absalom thinking, hey, if Absalom's going to kill Amnon, I'm not going to be too high in this thing you know, when he's dead. I mean, he's the heir right now. I'll suggest that he rapes Tamar. That'll, you know, get me in his good graces. But if her brother is going to actually kill him, I need to come over here and start helping Absalom with his schemes so that when things happen, I'm at least in, you know, the palace. And so it seems to me that he comes to David, is planted there with this information. And so, man, if this is all true, a lot of this, I'll admit, I'm speculating more than I like to. But if, in fact, he sends forth disinformation and if, in fact, Jonadab is there to put things into perspective, all of this is working on David so that what? So that he will not do anything to uh, uh, take his revenge or even apply the law to Absalom so that Absalom can go into an exile that he will return from and be first in line to take over the kingdom. Verse 34, Absalom fled and the young man who was keeping watch lifted his eyes and looked and there many people were coming from the road on the hillside behind him. And Jonadab said to the king, look, the king's sons are coming as your servant said, so it is. So it was, as soon as he had finished speaking, that the king's sons indeed came and they lifted up their voice and wept. And also the king and his servants wept very bitterly. What a dark day this was in David's uh, family and career as a king. I wonder if he felt a certain sense of deja vu. You know, some years earlier, he had tried to get Uriah married with wine. In fact, he did in order to cover his adultery with Bathsheba, but Uriah wouldn't go for it. And when that failed, David ordered his servants to have Uriah killed in battle. Here, Absalom orders his sheep shearers to kill him in a, what he believed was a battle-like situation. Verse 37, But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of uh, Amahud, king of Jeshur, and David mourned for his son every day. Absalom's mom was a Jeshurite. He fled to his grandpa's to be kept safe from any retribution. He didn't flee to a city of refuge in Israel because what he had done was premeditated murder and there was no refuge for that. If you 
uh, committed manslaughter, you could go to a city of refuge until your case could be heard and you would be found either guilty or not guilty. But if you murdered somebody, if you planned to do it for two years and then you did it, the death penalty is what was prescribed for you. So he went out of Israel and was there being protected by his uh, mom's family. Killing Amnon was a bold move. But I think Absalom had some idea that his father would not come after him. He seemed to know or at least be willing to gamble that he would be able to bide his time and return. After all, as we've pointed out already, David did nothing to Amnon after the incident with Tamar. It looked as though he was still the heir to the throne. Absalom would only rule if Amnon was eliminated and that was something he was going to have to do masked by his hatred for him because of what had happened to Tamar. So Absalom fled, verse 38, and went to Jeshur and was there three years. Now, three years isn't really that long to be in exile when you consider uh, what the real punishment was. Everything was on schedule then for Absalom to at least attempt a return. Then he'd have the option of waiting for his dad to die since he was now next in succession to be king, or he might just overthrow his dad which, in fact, is what he will do. Verse 39, King David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. At some point, David's mourning for Amnon came to an end. He began to long for Absalom. Why not? David could easily blame himself for his inaction towards Amnon, leading Absalom to take action. He'd lost Amnon why lose Absalom? I can hear that in a movie. Millions of movies that you've watched where say, oh, I lost one son, I don't want to lose another one. And you have a tendency to uh, be soft on this. Uh, you're, you know, you're, you're certainly not going to kill your other son. Just, you know, and, and, or at least if you're David, you're not. And I think, I think these kids knew their dad a little too well. David didn't seem to understand or maybe he didn't want to admit that Absalom's mind was set on the throne and that he was another obstacle to be overcome. Absalom, we see, became a slave to his mindset. His theme song, if he had one, would be, I just can't wait to be king. It caused him to leave his sister in a devastated condition for the rest of her life. It led him to plot a murder and then a coup. He was willing to live in exile as a fugitive if necessary in order to ultimately attain what he had set his mind upon. It's actually, from a fleshly point of view, a very brilliant plan. It's important then that we determine what or who our mind is set upon because it will be our master. There's a little Absalom within each of us, obviously, a determination to rule over the kingdom of our lives. If we set our course by it even a little, we'll find ourselves way off of our destination. Let me suggest an example to you. It's like all examples, it's not a great one, but I think it'll help us to understand this idea of where we're setting our mind. Let's say you're planning a big vacation. Think about wherever it is you like to go. That, that you're, you know, you're, ah, yeah, that would do it for me. That, that's the vacation I want. So, so you've got your vacation booked, and so now you go to work, and you go through your daily routines at home, but all the while what you're doing is you're really getting ready for your trip. You're getting ready for that destination. You've got some work. You, you might even work harder because you've got to get some things cleared off of your desk or you know, plow the field. Whatever you have to do, you've got to get that done so that you're leaving for vacation. And, and so you're working extra hard. You're covering your bases. You're making sure that everything is set. 
because not not because you're such a hard worker and you should be doing that anyway, but because I'm going on vacation and, and I don't want to get the call. And then at home, you got to make sure that, you know, the sprinklers are all set and the yard is this and, you know, whatever's happening in the house and the animals are taken care of. And you got, you know, at some point you think, I don't even want to go on vacation. It's so much work. But no, no, because I'm going, you know, wherever it is, whatever it is that moves you, wherever you want to go. And then finally, all of that is in place. And then you go. Heaven is much more than a vacation destination. But I think you get the idea. Set your mind by heaven and it will determine your course as you journey there. It will help you to bring glory to God in all of your work activities, in all of your home life, because what you're thinking about is any minute now, either through the rapture or my personal departure, I'm going to be on permanent vacation with the Lord. Amen?